Dear sister, my husband left me yesterday morning to join General Winder. He inquired anxiously whether I had courage or firmness to remain in the President's house until his return, on the morrow or succeeding day. And on my assurance that I had no fear but for him and the success of our army, he left me, beseeching me to take care of myself and of the cabinet papers, public and private. I am accordingly ready. I have pressed as many cabinet papers into trunks as to fill one carriage. Our private property must be sacrificed, as it is impossible to procure wagons for its transportation. I am determined not to go myself until I see Mr. Madison safe and he can accompany me. As I hear of much hostility towards him, disaffection stalks around us. Dolly Madison, August 23rd, 1814. Two hundred years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge. And a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at seconddecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two D's in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 30, The White House, Part 1. It's not often on this show that I get to return to a scene that occurred in a previous episode and see it from a new angle, but I now take you back to a scene that opened Episode 6 of Second Decade and in exactly the same words. On the evening of March 4, 1809, following the inauguration of James Madison as the fourth President of the United States, A group of politicians, well-wishers, and friends followed the Madisons from the Capitol, where the inauguration had been held, to the President's house, what we now call the White House. There was a reception there to welcome the new President, and also to say goodbye to the old one, Thomas Jefferson, who had just completed his eight-year term. Margaret Bayard Smith, a savvy Washington lady and friend of both Presidents, wrote a letter to her sister describing the day and the reception afterward. She said that Madison seemed pale and even trembling when he started his inaugural address, and still seemed a little on edge at the reception afterwards. By contrast, Jefferson was calm, collected, and charming. He danced with the ladies and cracked jokes. When someone noted how good he looked compared to the pale and worried-looking Madison, he's reported to have said, I have got this burden off my shoulders, while he has now got it on his. In episode 6, we kept the focus on Jefferson, who returned to Monticello in Virginia very much in debt and at the mercy of an environmental disaster, the volcanic-induced climate change that was characteristic of the second decade, which badly affected Jefferson's fortunes in his retirement life. Now, 24 episodes later, I want to return to this same scene on the evening of Inauguration Day, and instead focus on the short little man with the burden on his shoulders, or more accurately, on the house that he moved into. 
the White House is one of the great institutions of American democracy. Its cornerstone was laid by the very first president, George Washington, on October 13, 1792. With that origin stretching back to the very beginning of America, the White House embodies not merely the promise of America, but its original sin. In 2016, First Lady Michelle Obama famously observed, quote, Every single day, I wake up at a house built by slaves. Indeed, slaves and slavery are woven into the very bricks and mortar of the president's house. Many of the servants who lived there and who served the first 15 chief executives, many of whom were slaveholders, many of those servants were enslaved African Americans. That a woman descended from slave families would eventually live there as a president's wife in the second decade of the 21st century would have been unimaginable to Thomas Jefferson, a slave owner, or his successors, James Madison and James Monroe, both slave owners, who lived there in the second decade of the 19th century. The White House was also scarred by war. The facade that you see today looming over busy Pennsylvania Avenue is merely a shell of the original building. It was completely gutted, scooped out like a coconut out of its shell, and rebuilt between 1948 and 1952 during the administration of Harry Truman. But even that was a reconstruction. In 1814, at the climax of the War of 1812, the White House was completely burnt out by a British attack raid, necessitating the first of its numerous reconstructions, only 22 years after the laying of its cornerstone, and 14 after the arrival of the first president to live there. So what you might see of the White House if you visited it today, the state dining room, the blue room, none of that would show you what the White House was like in the second decade. There are almost no pictures of the house, especially the interior, that survive from that era. To know what it was like to live there 200 years ago, we have to delve into the words and records of the people who were there, which is often what we do on this show. In doing that, we'll encounter a story of destruction and resurrection, the dramatic resurrection of the White House from the ashes, which was an important symbol for the new nation, coming out of war and trying to find its own voice in a very uncertain world. So come along with me into the corridors, offices, kitchens, and bedrooms of America's most famous address, the White House. Good evening. A bit of housekeeping business before we begin. First, this is a rather unusual episode for Second Decade. It's going to be a two-parter, but the second part covers topics technically outside the normal subject matter of this show, meaning outside the decade of the 18-teens. I do those kind of episodes from time to time. They're called Second Decade Off-Topic. Part two of this series will be an off-topic episode. The episode you're listening to right now, episode 30, deals with the history of the White House in the 18-teens. But I decided to continue on the story, because there's still some fascinating stuff about the White House that occurs after 1820, and I thought that would make a good off-topic episode. So, the White House Part 2 will be that episode, which will drop simultaneously with this one, and will chronicle the history of America's most famous address from 1820 until the outbreak of the Civil War. Hope that's not too confusing. Secondly, while I try to make Second Decade accessible so you can follow it pretty much wherever in the show you start, podcast listeners like to skip around, and I certainly do that for sure. Anyway, despite that, this is one of the few episodes for which a prerequisite might be very helpful. Last season, I did a three-parter on the War of 1812. You don't have to go back and listen to all three. 
but the one that might give you some very good context for this episode is part two of that series. It's episode 16. The central event that occurred at the White House in the decade of the 18-teens was closely related to something else that happened during the War of 1812, specifically the American sack of Fort York in Canada, which is now a tiny little city I'm sure you've never heard of, called Toronto. The bloody goings-on at Fort York were discussed in Episode 16, The War of 1812, Part 2. The war that eventually turned the White House black in the summer of 1814 was not yet on, when James and Dolly Madison moved into the executive mansion in March 1809, following the departure of Thomas Jefferson. But that war was in the wind. That's where our story tonight technically starts, but like everything else on this show, you need some background first. Let me tell you first thing that the term the White House was not used in the second decade the way we use it today. In modern America, especially since the turn of the 20th century, We've literally anthropomorphized the place. Click on a news site and see how many times a reporter writes something like the White House said or the White House announced today or that sort of thing, as if the building itself could talk and issue executive orders or tweets. Indeed, the term the White House was officially used first during the administration of Teddy Roosevelt, who moved into the place in 1901. Before that, the mansion where all presidents but one had lived, and where two had died, had a bunch of different names. The president's house was probably the most commonly used. So I hope the purists in the audience won't take me to task for using the term the White House somewhat anachronistically. I'm going to skim over the origins and early history of the place, meaning the history pre-James Madison, because while it's relevant, if you're really interested, you can find a great deal written about it. Here's the too-long-didn't-read version for those of you with short attention spans. The original capital of the United States was Philadelphia. Then it was New York City, which is where the first president, George Washington, took the oath of office in April 1789, just a block from where the New York Stock Exchange now stands. There was a famous dinner party in 1790 involving Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton, where the site for the permanent national capital was chosen conveniently on lands not too far from the extensive property holdings of America's richest man, who happened to be, yes, that very same, President George Washington. Designed by James Hoban, the design was chosen by Washington in a contest against eight other entries, the place was originally supposed to be much bigger and grander than it turned out to be, but the new nation was a little strapped for cash during the 1790s. Still, even at that, its construction, which cost about $3 million in today's money, was a steal, literally. Most of the labor used to build the house was done by slaves. Washington, D.C. was a slave territory. Talk about original sin. Although it wasn't finished yet, the first president to live in the mansion was John Adams, who moved in at the beginning of November 1800, just barely long enough to get on the scoreboard. While floors were still being laid and walls plastered, in February 1801, the dramatic showdown in the House of Representatives resulted in the selection, I say selection, not election, the selection of Thomas Jefferson as the third president. On the morning of March 4, 1801, Adams left the White House to catch a horse-drawn bus out of town. He was one of the few chief executives to snub his successor by not attending his inauguration. But hey, he had to catch that bus. Throughout most of Jefferson's tenure, the White House was cavernous, half-empty, not really yet a house. Jefferson himself vastly preferred his own digs at Monticello, 
his home away from home, and Poplar Forest, his home away from home away from home. In Jefferson's time, it became normal for crowds of ordinary people to come calling at the president's mansion. In his second term, after Lewis and Clark had come back unexpectedly from the dead, or from Oregon as it were, Jefferson stocked the White House with various artifacts from the expedition, including antlers, pelts, Native American costumes, and even two live bear cubs. Actually, those were brought by Zebulon Pike, not Lewis and Clark. So yes, now you know, bear cubs were once in residence at the White House, though not for long. They had to be moved to a zoo in Philadelphia, and ended up getting shot and stuffed, in that order. Thomas Jefferson left the White House for the last time on March 9, 1809. The Madisons moved in about two weeks later. James Madison, the fourth president, father of the Constitution, was 57. His wife, Dolly Todd Madison, she'd been married before, was 40. The Madisons brought slaves with them to the executive mansion. The president's valet was a slave named Paul Jennings, who was just 10 years old at that time. Jennings, who would eventually purchase his freedom in 1845 through the intercession of Daniel Webster, went on to write a memoir of his years at the White House. He described the place as unfinished, still, and the streets of Washington as muddy or dusty, depending on the season. Mrs. Madison had a maid, also a slave, named Suki. The steward of the White House was a Frenchman named Jean-Pierre Sousal. His job was to manage the first family's meals and wine, and also to cater to the banquets and dinners that invariably came with the job of being president. The centerpiece of Madison's White House was three rooms that faced the southern side of the White House. That's the side with the rounded portico that you see more often in pictures than the north side, which is square. Madison converted the large room that Jefferson had used as his office into the state dining room, which it still is today. The next room, today's red room, and what's now the blue room, were to be the main functionary rooms of the mansion. Dolly had them lavishly redecorated. New furniture was made by Benjamin Latrobe, who had designed the U.S. Capitol. Dolly's parlor, east of the dining room, was decorated in Grecian motifs, very popular in the second decade. There was also a drawing room where the Madisons entertained illustrious visitors and members of the public, usually on Wednesday evenings. One can imagine these rooms beautifully decorated, softly lit with candles, and by our modern standards drafty and cold, but the height of luxury in the early 18-teens, especially in a raw, not-yet-finished town like Washington, D.C., Madison's Wednesday evening drawing room receptions and Dolly's habit of calling on people who had called on her endeared the couple to Washington society, which even in the second decade was becoming catty and precarious. As the war with Britain approached, Madison's political fortunes grew more complicated. In 1812, he was headed into an election year, and war was the main issue. Upstairs in the cabinet rooms, Madison and his advisors continually debated matters pertaining to war and peace, but it was ultimately Congress's decision. The war came in June 1812. Washington was as hot and sticky as ever. Presidents typically avoided the White House in the summer months due to the prevalence of disease, especially malaria. The capital was built on a swamp, mosquitoes were everywhere, and the water that came from wells on the property was dangerously unclean. Madison frequently decamped from the White House to his own plantation, Montpelier, in Orange County, Virginia. He would usually leave in June and stay a month, then return to the White House to work. Dolly and their son, Payne Todd, would remain at Montpelier for the rest of the summer. During the time the president was gone, the executive mansion was empty, except for the presence of an occasional caretaker. 
In fact, during the summer, the furniture was draped in slipcovers, and the windows remained dark and the hall silent. This was the Madison's routine in the summers, and it was how things went in the first two summers of the war, 1812 and 1813. Then, the next year, the war came to the White House itself. The British were on a rampage everywhere. Beyond fighting in the Old Northwest, the fort battles I talked about in the War of 1812 episodes, their style tended to be hit-and-run coastal raids, carried out through combined use of ground troops and naval vessels. After American troops burned York in 1813 and went on a rampage of their own, looting and burning the city, the British decided to get revenge by mounting the biggest coastal raid yet on Washington, D.C. The pressures of the war had caused Madison to cancel his usual summer visit to Montpelier in 1814. The threat of invasion by the British was too great for him to spend his time cooling his heels back home. Thus he worked through the sweltering summer, drinking bad water, enduring clouds of buzzing mosquitoes, and constantly seeing worrisome dispatches about British troops and ships being seen all over the place. In early August, word came that a huge British force, 4,000 strong, had left Europe headed for the Chesapeake area. This intelligence didn't arrive long before the troops themselves did. The Redcoats started clambering ashore on August 19th. Guards were posted at the White House, but Madison remained in council with his cabinet. Over the next couple of days, they drew closer. On August 22nd, James Monroe, Secretary of State, wrote a dispatch to the president warning that, quote, the enemy are in full march for Washington. The decisive battle for Washington occurred at a place called Bladensburg, Maryland. As news that the armies were about to be engaged trickled into the capital, President Madison decided to ride out to check the situation for himself. He wrote back to Dolly, who was still at the White House, and told her she'd better be ready to flee at a moment's notice. She began packing important state papers. Bladensburg did not go well for American forces. In fact, you could say they got clowned. Observers at the time called it the worst defeat for American forces ever. Madison witnessed the rout, and he and his commanders had to flee as the British advanced. They spent the night in Brookville, Maryland, hoping they wouldn't get captured. In the meantime, the Redcoats faced an open road to Washington, and no one to stop them. As soon as the fighting was decided at Bladensburg, the president dispatched a messenger to the White House to tell his wife, basically, get the hell out of there. Dolly was still at the White House, patiently awaiting word and preparing for dinner. Not that she expected anybody to come, but she had to be ready. The messenger, James Smith, galloped his horse onto the White House ground, shouting, Clear out! General Armstrong is ordered to retreat! The circumstances of Dolly Madison's hasty departure, and what she took with her, became a matter of historical legend. Hanging on the parlor wall was the famous portrait of George Washington, painted by Gilbert Stuart. Not quite finished. In fact, it's known as the unfinished portrait. Supposedly, Dolly Madison cut it out of its frame, rolled it up, and took it with her, damning the British and making sure they would never have that picture. That's the legend Dolly Madison is known for. The truth is, though, that it didn't happen. At least not that way. Here's what did happen. President Madison had promised the Custis family, that's the family of George Washington's widow, that if the city was captured by the British, he'd make sure the portrait was saved. Dolly knew this. As Washington was emptying out, two men, Jacob Barker and Robert DePaster, who were total strangers, wandered into the White House off the street and offered to help. The White House chef, Jean-Pierre Soussaint, tried to take the Washington portrait off the wall, but it was screwed in too tightly. He broke the frame and took the picture, which was on a stretcher, and laid it on the floor. 
They could have cut the picture out of the stretcher, but that would have taken time, and everybody was insisting that Mrs. Madison leave, like right now. The two strangers, Barker and DePaster, assured the First Lady that they'd see to the safety of the picture, as long as she got out. This was the only way Dolly Madison would leave the White House. Taking with her two eagle ornaments and a bunch of red velvet curtains and a trunk, she boarded her carriage and was gone. It was 3.30 p.m. The British didn't come right away. Amazingly, after Dolly left, the President showed up with some of the guys who'd been with him at Bladensburg. The thunderstorm that had been threatening since noon was almost there. The skies were cloudy and lightning was flashing. Madison, exhausted, sprawled on a chair in the state dining room and had a glass of wine. He told Barker and DePaster about the battle. As darkness fell, lightning still flashing in the sky, everyone who was left in the White House, including Madison, packed up what they could in a cart, including the Washington portrait, locked the doors behind them, and cleared out. The Brits weren't far behind. At 7.30 p.m., which couldn't have been more than an hour after the White House was locked up, British troops under the command of Major General Robert Ross and Rear Admiral George Cockburn marched down Pennsylvania Avenue. Their first target was the Capitol. With that in flames, a party of about 150 British sailors set upon the White House. They broke open the doors and browsed around like tourists. Entering the dining room, Admiral Cockburn found the very same decanter of wine that President Madison had been drinking an hour or two earlier. The British officers poured around and toasted facetiously to Madison's health. In the meantime, sailors went around breaking windows and stacking furniture into piles in the center of each room. Surprisingly, the Brits didn't make off with anything valuable. Part of the rationale for sacking Washington was payback for the burning of York, but the British had protested loudly that the Americans' looting of that city was barbaric, so they didn't want to be accused of the same thing. Naturally, some of the troops took little things. Cockburn is said to have taken a hat belonging to Madison, as well as a chair cushion, which he used to make fun of Dolly Madison's butt. The sailors outside had been preparing a bunch of long sticks with balls of rag soaked in oil at one end. Once the officers came out of the White House, the sailors lit the rags and took up positions surrounding the house. When Cockburn gave the order, they threw the fire poles through the broken-out windows all at once. Almost instantly, the White House was a huge Roman candle. In a few hours, when the rain finally started falling and put out the flames, all that was left was a hollow, burnt-out shell. The White House was totally destroyed. After the British went away, they had no intention of occupying Washington, this was, after all, a hit-and-run raid, the Madisons came back to survey the damage. It was basically a pile of blackened bricks, almost nothing worth saving. The capital was utterly trashed, too. In the meantime, the President and First Lady went to stay at a nearby building called the Octagon House, formerly the official residence of the French Minister to the United States. Dolly seems to have had a mild touch of PTSD. There are reports of her breaking down into sobs while at tea parties that fall, whenever she thought of what the British had done. In addition to humiliating the American nation, I mean, when the enemy sacks your capital and burns down your leader's house, that's pretty decisive. The raid was a personal financial disaster for the Madisons, who had to pay to restock everything that had been destroyed when the White House went up. Curiously, that fall of 1814, there was a general expectation that the Capitol and the White House would not be rebuilt. The British raid had showed how vulnerable Washington, D.C. was to attack, 
and if the war continued, it was quite possible Congress would vote to relocate the nation's capital much farther inland, probably west of the Appalachian Mountains. If that happened, the Capitol and the White House might today still be ruins, carefully preserved, like the ruins of the Forum in Rome. Within a couple of months, though, the War of 1812 was over. John Quincy Adams managed to secure a pretty good deal at the Treaty of Ghent. But of course, any deal with the Brits that ended the fighting, and with the United States nominally still an independent country, was worth doing. News of the treaty reached American shores in February 1815. Now, suddenly, it was game on for reconstructing the public buildings. In fact, Madison told the Commission of the District of Columbia, a board that would have responsibility for rebuilding, that the two buildings must be reconstructed exactly the way they were before, so that no one would notice any difference. To make this clear, the Commission even hired James Hoban, the original architect of the White House, to supervise the rebuilding effort. Similarly, Benjamin Latrobe, who had built the Capitol, was tapped to do it all over again, Imagine, these guys got a second chance to rebuild the most famous buildings of their careers. As he surveyed the wreckage, Hoban realized that even the outer shell of the White House was going to need a lot of rebuilding. Many of the stones had been either weakened by the extreme heat of the fire, or cracked open by moisture from being open to the elements in the succeeding winter. Stonemasons were hired to quarry new sandstone blocks. In reality, almost nothing of what was originally constructed in the 1790s was preserved in the 1816 reconstruction of the White House. A couple of architectural details, particularly on the north face, that's the flat boxy side, remember? Some of those were saved, but just about everything else was new. As the clock ran down on Madison's administration, the walls of the new White House were going up. This time, there was a lot more free labor involved than there had been before. Hoban tended to hire unskilled white men rather than slaves. Most of the stonecutters, in fact, were Irish immigrants. This adds another layer of American authenticity to the story of the White House. The original structure was built by slaves, and the second one was built by immigrants. A new roof went up on the structure in the fall of 1816. Wood was now being imported to the White House site in abundance, bay wood and a type of mahogany that comes from Santo Domingo. During the winter of 1816-1817, which was exceptionally cold thanks to the Tambora effect, see episode 7, passers-by on the street could often see smoke rising from the unfinished White House. This was from fireplaces and chimneys installed early on, which workmen lit during the day to keep them warm as they worked. On March 4, 1817, the new president, James Monroe, former Secretary of State, walked up to the building that was called the Old Brick Capitol, the temporary meeting place of the U.S. Congress, while the Capitol proper was under reconstruction. The retiring president, James Madison, was there. It was a cold, raw, gloomy day. At the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue, the White House stood, still unfinished, but starting to look like something. In his inaugural address of the conflict that had reduced the capital of his country to a smoking ruin, Monroe said, quote, just as this constitution was put into action, several of the principal states of Europe had become much agitated, and some of them seriously convulsed. Destructive wars ensued, which have of late only been terminated. In the course of these conflicts, the United States received great injury from several of the parties. It was their interest to stand aloof from the contest, to demand justice from the party committing the injury, and to cultivate by a fair and honorable conduct the friendship of all. War became at length inevitable, and the result has shown that our government is equal to that, the greatest of trials under the most unfavorable circumstances. End quote. 
Where Madison hadn't seemed to care that much, Monroe was intimately involved in the details of the reconstruction of the White House. He demanded daily reports on what the workmen were doing and how much progress they were making. No pressure. It was clear Monroe really wanted to move into the restored White House. Healing the wound of the British raid was both a political and personal imperative for him and his wife, the shy and retiring Elizabeth Courtright Monroe, who remains one of the least known and most mysterious first ladies of American history. Monroe came to power at a curious time. He was a Democratic-Republican, the party of Jefferson, which by the time of Monroe's inauguration in 1817 had been in power for 16 years. The opposition party, the Federalists, basically pooped in their own nest with the Hartford Convention in 1814. If you want details on that, go back to the very first episode of Second Decade, Episode 1. Suffice it to say, the Federalists were, in 1817, in the process of imploding as a national or even regional party. Monroe basically presided over something rare in American history, for all intents and purposes, a one-party system. As he became president in 1817, Monroe sought to hammer home the idea of unity, of rising above politics. A bit starry-eyed of him, but you can't blame him. As a way to deliver this message, and a way to get out of the fetid, mosquito-infested swamp of Washington in the summer, Monroe decided that instead of going back home to his own Virginia plantation in the summer of 1817, he'd go on a tour of New England, formerly, and still to some extent, the hotbed of Federalist sentiment, to remind people of this quote-unquote unity message, if you look at it positively, or to twist the knife, if you look at it cynically. In any event, Monroe was going to New England. The raw-boned Virginian slave owner, that's how they described him, raw-boned, he was planning to suck down some oysters and clam chowder, and drink toast to the unity of America on the common greens of Massachusetts and Vermont. But in planning this lengthy trip, Monroe made it very clear back in Washington that when he came home, he and Liz intended to move into the White House once and for all. Message to those in charge of construction. The house had better be habitable by October, or else. Your president commands you. And because your president reigns in a one-party system, you don't really have the option of voting him out. This was literal truth in 1817. Monroe's tour was a big success, at least according to him and his people. In Boston, he put on an old Revolutionary War uniform, tied back his long hair in a ribbon, and people on Boston Common raised their glasses to him as they got progressively more smashed, which was how you celebrated the 4th of July in the second decade. One newspaper, a Federalist newspaper at that, said that Monroe's tour was the beginning of, quote, an era of good feelings. This eventually became the label for the whole era, roughly 1817 to 1825 and it's completely bogus. Leaving aside certain possibilities that could be described as NSFW, not safe for work, the only way you could experience good feelings in this era of divisive politics was through ingesting copious amounts of alcohol, which was pretty common in political life in this era. So while President Monroe was getting blitzed and pumping his good feelings all over New England, an army of workmen were frantically trying to finish the White House fair number of those workmen were slaves. Hoban's stonemasons had been Irish immigrants, but the push to complete the White House for Master Monroe, himself a slave owner like the last two presidents before him, required the very unfree labor of unfree people. But given the White House's previous history of exploitative labor, that shouldn't be a surprise. In October 1817, the master returned. 
he and Elizabeth did not want to stay at the Octagon House anymore, and they did move into the White House, which was not quite done. Plaster on the interior walls was still wet. Workmen lit fires in the rooms to try to dry it in a hurry. There was no wallpaper. Nothing was painted. The marble mantelpieces ordered from Italy were still somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic. Still, the Monroes barreled ahead like nothing was wrong. Jim and Liz, the President and First Lady, had lived in Paris in the 1790s, when Monroe was Minister to France, so they were familiar with French styles. And for the new White House, they ordered a bunch of French furniture through various American agents in Paris. It started arriving that fall, though there was no place to put much of it. Such were the vagaries of living in a largely unfinished house. I've lived in unfinished houses, you get used to cold rooms and the smell of fresh paint, and putting shoes on to get up and go to the bathroom in the middle of the night because the carpet hasn't been installed yet. This is what you do. Monroe, however, had another role he had to fulfill, the head of a democratic nation, who theoretically had to open the doors of his house to the public, as the Madisons had done with their Wednesday night salons. Shortly after they arrived, Monroe made a hard and fast declaration. The house, though still unfinished, had to be ready for a public reception on New Year's Day. On January 1, 1818, the newly rebuilt White House opened its doors for a great New Year's reception, to which everybody who was anybody in Washington was invited. New Year's was a surprisingly warm and sunny day. The house opened at noon and was soon full of visitors. Candles glowed softly in the parlors. The workmen who had toiled so hard to get the house ready were given their just rewards. They guzzled glasses of whiskey and port and chowed down on cheese, sugar, and crackers. This must have been a great comfort to the workmen who were slaves. I'm being sarcastic, of course. You just worked your ass off all summer so the man who owns you can have a party and impress his friends. Here, have some cheese. Successful as the Monroe's New Year's reception was, the house still wasn't done. Incompleteness was basically a permanent condition at the White House in the second decade. Remember those marble mantelpieces I mentioned a while back? They did not arrive until December of 1818, and then they had to be put together some assembly required, and no instructions were included. The mantles weren't finished until June 1819. And even then, Monroe wanted more. He had visions of expanding the White House, building offices off the east and west wings, and connecting them to the main house through covered porticos. This plan didn't quite come off due to an economic downturn, a depression really, called the Panic of 1819, which I plan to do a future episode on. Maybe in Season 3, I have to do Simon Bolivar first. The cycle of Reconstruction, the rising of the White House from the ashes the British had made of it, finally came to an end at the very end of the second decade, in January 1820. In that month, the series of stables that had been planned for the White House grounds was finally complete. Pennsylvania Avenue was still a muddy lane, unpaved and full of ruts. Washington, D.C. was a ragged stump town, barely carved out of the wilderness, and the place was still infested with armor-piercing mosquitoes that caused all manner of unpleasant diseases but at least the White House stood again, and it was something to look at. The entertainments of the Monroes were not nearly as popular or well-received as that of the Madisons. Elizabeth was in generally poor health during her husband's presidency, and seldom went out calling, as Dolly Madison had done, although the social calls she did make were a big deal. The infrequent receptions at the White House were not enthusiastically attended by Washington society. Monroe himself didn't exactly set the world on fire with a winning personality but it was still the era of good feeling, whatever that meant. In the fall of 1820, James Monroe ran for re-election. Because there was no opposition party, he managed to get elected pretty decisively. 
There was no campaign. There were no issues. There were no debates. Funny how being president in a one-party system makes elections a lot less tricky. Monroe was essentially unopposed. He received every electoral vote except for one. He might as well not have had an election at all. So at the end of the second decade, a period that had seen the White House literally reduced to a pile of smoking rubble, President's Mansion had risen again better than before, and the president who lived there was supposedly so perfect and popular that no one even bothered to run against him. Who in 1820 could have predicted that result 11 years earlier, when Jefferson was leaving and the world was entirely different? That's where we leave this subject for now, but it's far from the end of the story of the White House. If you want more, continue on to the second decade off-topic episode, which traces the history of the house from 1820 to 1861. And in the meantime, think about the incredible odyssey that the history of the president's home represents, from a war zone to the closest thing America would ever have to a royal castle, all in the course of a single tumultuous decade. If you like this podcast, please do me a favor, leave a star rating and a review on iTunes. The vast majority of listeners to Second Decade have found us on iTunes, and it will greatly increase our reach. If you have social media or talk to other history buffs, give Second Decade a mention. Also check out the other great history podcasts on Recorded History Network. Podcasts like History in the Making, The Dangerous History Podcast, Election College, Dead Ideas, The China History Podcast, Explorers, and The Way of Improvement Leads Home. And remember, the Second Decade book is coming. I'd love for you to contribute to my Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash seanmunger. You can also read a lot of history and a lot of other stuff at my personal website, seanmunger.com. My historical sources for this episode include The President's House, A History, by William Seal, Volume 1, published by the White House Historical Association, 1986. Special thanks to Corey of the Art History Babes podcast. She portrayed Dolly Madison. Thanks, Corey. Art History Babes is another great podcast on the Recorded History Podcast Network. Music credits. Our theme music for this podcast is called The Long Road Ahead by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, used under Creative Commons 3.0 license. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.